Thank you so much, Doug, and thank you everyone for joining uh, the webinar today. Uh, you know, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to come and learn a little bit more about criminal record relief for survivors of human trafficking. I hope that everyone out there can hear me and see me. Like, like Doug said, my name is Lavinia Weisel. I'm a litigation attorney at Mintz in Boston, and I'm also the co-chair of the BBA's Human Trafficking Subcommittee of the Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee. And criminal record relief for survivors of human trafficking is something that's very near and dear to me. I've been working on these issues for nearly five years, both representing survivors and participating in legislative advocacy efforts, including to help pass the vacature law in Massachusetts in 2018. And I would say that I'm thrilled to see a number of familiar faces in the audience, but truth be told, we can't see you. So the way that this program is set up today, the panelists can all see each other, but we can't see the audience and the audience members can't see each other. So, um, you know, that said, we certainly do want this to be interactive. So both the chat and the Q&A feature at the bottom of your Zoom screen are enabled today. Please do feel free to post questions in the Q&A as the program unfolds, and we will also plan to leave um, time for questions at the end. So the plan for today is that I'll introduce you to our presenters, then we'll hear a brief overview of the legal landscape for criminal record relief for survivors in Massachusetts, and then we'll pose questions to our panelists each of whom has some personal experience navigating this process in Massachusetts. And finally, like I said, we'll leave some time for questions. So the first um, panelist that I'd like to introduce is Ashley Pelto. Ashley is the new co-chair of the Human Trafficking Subcommittee of the Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee here at the BBA. Ashley is currently an Equal Justice Works Fellow at Dove, and her fellowship is co-sponsored by the Jones Day Foundation and Procter and & Gamble. Ashley's fellowship is centered on the intersection of domestic violence and human trafficking with a focus on both policy work and direct services to support survivors. Second, we're very honored to have Nikki Bell join us today. Nikki is the founder and CEO of Lyft in Worcester. Lyft's mission is to end prostitution and provide resources and support for individuals exiting. Nikki is a survivor of human trafficking, and she recently was able to obtain the vacature of a number of those convictions that arose from her trafficking, and she's here to share the story of that experience with us. We also have with us today Alec Zadik. Alec is a partner at Mintz in Boston, and he has represented survivors of human trafficking in criminal record relief and immigration and other proceedings for nearly 10 years. He's active in legislative and public policy advocacy for survivors, including leading the charge to advocate for the vacature law that we'll talk about today. And he's, he also led the legal team that represented Nikki in her recent successful vacatures. Also with us today is Alyssa Scruggs. Alyssa is also a litigator at Mintz and she was a critical part of Nikki's legal team. Alyssa is also active in current public policy initiatives to aid survivors of human trafficking in Massachusetts. And finally, also with us today is Dave Keat. Dave is also a litigator at Mintz, and before that, he was an assistant district attorney in Middlesex County. Dave represented a survivor of human trafficking in the first, um, as far as we know, successful vacature under the new statute. And he continues to represent survivors of human trafficking and domestic violence in criminal record relief and other related matters. 
so with with those introductions, you know, thank thank you to everyone out there again for taking the time to be with us today. And I'll turn it over now to Ashley to give us an overview of the state of the law with respect to criminal record relief for survivors in Massachusetts. Great, thanks, Lavinia. Go ahead and pull this up. So before we uh, turn to our panelists and uh, their expertise around Massachusetts trafficking specific vacature statute, I wanted to just take about 10 minutes uh, to provide some background on what exactly criminal record relief is and why it's important for survivors of human trafficking. So in 2016, the National Survivor Network, which is an organization comprised of trafficking survivors, released a survey it had conducted of 130 of its members in which the survivors were asked among other things, whether they'd ever been arrested and charged with a crime in connection with their exploitation. Over 90% of the survivors reported that they'd been arrested at least once during the course of being trafficked. And over half of all survivors believe that 100% of their arrest charges and convictions were directly related to their trafficking experience. These charges can vary widely in nature depending on how a trafficker chooses to exploit their victim. The types of crime law enforcement in a given district are enforcing and in what way and on the specific vulnerabilities of a given survivor. The Survivor Reentry Project, which is a project underneath the American Bar Association, wrote in its guide to attorneys who are advocating for survivors with convictions, that different policing strategies, for example, those uh, that prioritize a high volume of arrest for lower level offenses, can increase the likelihood that victims of trafficking will come into contact with police by virtue of their own arrests. For sex trafficking victims, these crimes are frequently prostitution charges, but they may also include charges such as weapons or drugs related offenses, financial crimes and identity theft. Labor traffickers like sex traffickers can benefit from forcing a victim to commit illegal acts such, uh, such as selling or cultivating drugs or commonly at the US border forcing individuals to be drug mules or to bring people into the country illegally. Additionally, common offenses for labor trafficking can uh, include possession of false ID documents, financial crimes, or minor offenses like trespassing. For minors who are trafficked, they're often charged with status offenses such as truancy or running away. If a person is not identified as a survivor at the time of arrest or prosecution, the frequent result is that their trafficking experience ends with a criminal record on top of the myriad of traumas that they've endured. The records that result from such arrests and convictions can impact survivors' lives for years after they're able to leave their trafficking experience. A survivor with a criminal record may face rejection from a job or housing application when a potential employer or landlord discovers the conviction in a background check, thus barring them from finding gainful employment or affordable housing. The National Survivor Network survey found that of the 91% of survivors with criminal convictions on their records, 73% had faced barriers with employment and 57% with housing. Additionally, survivors could be disqualified from financial aid or private loans if they're seeking to continue their education. They could lose or be unable to regain custody of their children. They may not be able to access government benefits or they may face removal from the country or be barred re-entry if they're a foreign national with a criminal record. These convictions can force survivors to live with records based off crimes that they were forced, coerced, or defrauded into committing by their trafficker. According to the Survivor Reentry Project's guide, such a record can serve as a reminder of past abuse, 
and become a source of shame. Survivors often face the dilemma of having to explain to a potential employer or landlord the source of their arrest or conviction, and therefore must choose between sharing their trafficking experience with a stranger or simply walking away from an opportunity. Fortunately, uh, there is a record available for trafficking survivors who have convictions as a result of their trafficking experience. This remedy at the state level comes in the form of criminal, uh, criminal record relief, which can take one of three forms, the sealing of a record, the expunging of an arrest or conviction from a record, or the vacating of a record. Record sealing is the least effective of the options for um, a survivor since the conviction remains, sealing only hides it from public view. A sealed conviction would not turn up on a standard background check, but a court order can still allow a party access to a sealed record. Records that are expunged are inaccessible to the public, but can remain visible to certain government agencies. So prosecutors um, are able to use a conviction against a survivor in a later legal proceeding if they chose to do so. Vacature then is the most effective of the three because it exonerates a survivor of any guilt and removes the trace of the record from the criminal record system. Once the conviction is vacated and dismissed, the records of it are deleted because it no longer exists as a matter of law. Vacature that is based in statutory language on the merits is the strongest form of relief because it confirms the vacature was due to a substantive defect in the judgment against the survivor in the first place. So just to provide a brief historical background to our discussion for today, in 2010, New York became the first state to create a law which allowed survivors of trafficking to vacate prostitution and related convictions that were a result of having been trafficked. Now all but six states in the federal government have followed suit and have some form of record relief on the books for trafficking survivors. This area of law is constantly evolving. Much of the evolution has been spurred on by survivor leader advocacy, direct services organizations, in particular one uh, anti-trafficking nonprofit Polaris's state report cards, which evaluated each state's performance on meeting this need for survivors in their jurisdiction. Massachusetts enacted its statute in 2018. It's currently ranked eighth out of all 50 states on Polaris's report. It is worth mentioning only a single state on the report earned a B ranking to a C. The remainder of the states received a non-passing grade. So since this area of law is so new, there remains a lot of room for possible growth in the future. So then lastly, I just wanted to take a moment to provide a brief overview of the Massachusetts Trafficking Victim Vacature Law, which our panelists are about to cover in a lot more detail. So as I'll explain, one of the most positive elements of this statute is that it created a streamlined procedure for survivors of trafficking to seek vacature of certain criminal convictions. Outside of the vacature statute, there does remain a fairly complicated system for seeking relief, which relies on Massachusetts Rule of Criminal Procedure 30B. Underneath uh, the specific statute, a survivor must show that they were trafficked at the time of the offense and that the offense was committed as a result of their being a victim of trafficking. As I stated, it is a vacature statute, which as we just discussed, is the most comprehensive form of record relief. The following offenses uh, may be vacated under the new statute, which are essentially convictions related to prostitution or minor drug possession. Under the new law, Official documentation that the survivor was a victim of trafficking at the time of the offense does establish a presumption that they meet the standard for vacature. And this presumption also arises automatically if the survivor being trafficked was under 18 at the time of the offense. 
So with that background, um, I am going to turn things over to Lavinia to go ahead and start our panel discussion. There we go. Um, well, thank you, Ashley, for kind of setting the stage for us today. And I think at this point, we'll turn things over, um, you know, to Nikki kind of to start, you know, Nikki, you're, you're a survivor of human trafficking, and you recently had a number of convictions vacated, both through the statutory procedure, and the more complicated kind of procedure that we just talked about, which is under Rule 30B. Um, but maybe you can just share with us a little bit of the background on those convictions and, you know, why vacature was important for you now and, and what the experience was like for you in going through that process. Sure. Thank you for um, having me first. Um, and I just, again, want to thank the team at Mintz for helping me uh, access vacature relief. So for, you know, Ashley mentioned a few things about uh, like housing and employment, um, you know, being barriers and why survivors may seek uh, vacature relief um, for, you know, and, and for a long time, you know, the work I do, uh, you know, fortunately, um, everybody knows about kind of my history, right? But for me, people often don't think about the other uh, barriers that faces. You know, I have a four-year-old son and a six-month-old daughter. And the reality, this is my son's about to enter school. And if I applied to um, chaperone my, my son's field trip, I wouldn't have been allowed to do those things, right? And so there are also like those like, you know, correlating things that, that happen later on once a survivor has exited that, are also um, reasons for vacature. Um, so, you know, my experience, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to have the help of Mints, which also a lot of survivors don't have access to. So I'm grateful that, you know, we are educating other attorneys on how to um, navigate this process. But when I exited prostitution um, six and a half years ago, I believe I had you know, close to 30 convictions. Um, I believe around 19 of them were uh, prostitution related. So either sex for a fee or common street walking. Um, so when any landlord or, uh, you know, employer looked at my record, that is what they saw. Um, and I think people don't realize too that it can go a couple of different ways, right? So you may uh, apply for a job and your employer could just, you know, the employer could just say, you know, you know, discredit you right, right away, or he could also um, solicit you because that happens as well, right? Um, and so for many of us, this record becomes a, a barrier to, to jobs and employment um, that people, people then have to, to navigate. When me and my husband went to apply for our first apartment, we were walking away and the, the landlord said to us, I, I just want you to know my wife's a private investigator and we are gonna run your criminal record. Is there anything that you wanna tell us? And I had to stand in, in an empty apartment and, and disclose to a potential landlord um, my history with prostitution and that really isn't fair. Um, so many of my convictions that um, took place while I was in prostitution, uh, we're not related to, to substance use disorder and the mass vacature law does not go far enough, I believe. It only in, in covers um, 
misdemeanor uh, prostitution offenses and minor drug charges. So for example, I had an assault and battery that wasn't covered under this. I also had um, some driving offenses that weren't covered. Oftentimes survivors are forced to carry drugs and guns and weapons for traffickers. And so those, those charges aren't, aren't covered, uh, but uh, through some, uh, I, you know, Alex and Melissa will speak to what, how they got that vacated. I'm not good with the legal use, but through some statute, they were able to get those convictions done as well. Um, I, and also, you know, again, it, I think people think that since vacature relief exists, that this is a solution for survivors. Um, it's a really complicated process that is really traumatizing. So not only do we traumatize survivors um, through the arrest, through their incarceration, we then uh, put them through a really traumatizing uh, practice of, of having to have their record vacated. Uh, fortunately, you know, where my, my story was so public, um, the Mintz team did a great job. And I will say uh, many attorneys are not trauma informed, but I really didn't have to go through the process of sitting across from a legal team, dis disclosing all like the, the trauma and violence I'd experienced. And I just want, I just, Hope you know that was appreciated, right? You went out and did your research and found, you know, the information about my story that you needed um, to draft the motion, and that that was really significant because, again, you know, um, the power differential between survivors and attorneys is significant, right? And again, putting a survivor through this traumatizing process, having to sit across from attorneys and disclose their story, um, is is not fair either. So um, last, last I believe it was a year ago when we started the process, um, I came into Mintz um, and we, we began talking about uh, vacature relief for me. Um, and it took us over a year, I believe, to get it in front of a judge. Um, but again, my case was complicated. I had close to 30 convictions. Um, and so through the, you know, finding the information about my story and also me writing um, an affidavit stating that I was trafficked, which can become another barrier, right? Um, it's not like survivors can get a certified letter from their pimp, um, you know, dis disclosing that they were trafficked, right? Um, so I was able to write an affidavit myself saying that I was a victim of trafficking. And there was also um, a letter attached from law enforcement stating that I was as well. And we were able to um, work and get my entire record vacated. Um, from that point, we also then went back and had my record sealed. Um, and so now things like, you know, going on my son's field trip, and I also run a substance use program that we're about to invite children to uh, come with their parents. And that again, would have been a barrier in my work as well, that the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services wouldn't have given us a license with me leading the organization. And so it, it could become a barrier for employment later down the line for survivors as well. Um, I don't, I'm not really sure what else um, to add here. I'm happy to answer any questions later. Um, Fantastic. No, thank you, Nikki, so much for sharing a little bit, you know, with with the group and with the audience about your experience. Um, and, you know, we're certainly um, glad to have been able to assist you and also really appreciate your bravery, you know, in navigating this whole process. Um, you know, I think 
maybe I, this is a little bit different than I intended, but maybe actually we can turn to Alec next. Alec, um, you know, Nikki touched on one of the aspects of her experience was that some of her convictions fell within within the, the, the umbrella of the statute and some fell outside the scope of the statute. And you have experience representing survivors in similar circumstances or prior to the vacature statute being enacted. And maybe you can share a little bit with the audience about um, your the approach in terms of seeking to have um, convictions vacated that don't don't fall into the statute. Sure, I'd love to. And Nikki, thank you so much. Nikki touched on so many of the principles underlying the statute and really the legal process. So really, the Rule 30B of criminal procedure is so important in these cases. It, it was vital before the statute, it remains vital after the statute, because most cases have offenses that are beyond uh, the prostitution related offenses and minor possession that are listed in the statute. When we were drafting it, if we could have made it broader and the legislature would have approved, we would have loved to do that. That was a big uh, negotiating point that changed a bunch. Uh, but the good news is there's a way to do it. And it really stems from you know, where this all started about 10 years ago, where we had a, a client who was had a similar problem, couldn't participate in a program in the college um, because they had prostitution related convictions. They were in witness protection for testifying against uh, their pimp and we were asked to seal their record. Um, which didn't seem fair at all, right? Why would you seal someone's record where they're in witness protection for testifying against their pimp and they have only four convictions on their record, which are all from being prostituted by that pimp uh, or series of pimps. Uh, so that's where we looked at the criminal code and used criminal rule of civil procedure, um, I'm sorry, criminal rule of procedure 30B, which allows for uh, moving for a new trial if it's in the interest of justice. And the Supreme Court of Massachusetts has recognized that um, new evidence is uh, something that may warrant uh, the interest of justice to vacate a conviction and set it for a new trial. And what we've argued is that even though everyone may know at the time, because the pimp is also being prosecuted, that the person was prostituted, um, that person may not be in a position to advocate for themselves. They may not be in a position to talk to the defense attorney. They just may not be able to help uh, show, prove the duress uh, at the time. And so we, what we did is we argued uh, that similar to battered women's syndrome, which has been recognized in domestic relationships, that that is really no different in the pimp-prostitute relationship. The people, uh, prostituted people rely on their pimps often for food, clothing, shelter, affection, it's a very complicated relationship that most courts at the time, 10 years ago, didn't fully appreciate. But we were fortunate to use that uh, criminal rule of criminal procedure to vacate uh, various clients' convictions for prostitution-related offenses. But all the things that Nikki said uh, rang true, complicated, uh, it, huge power dynamic. Attorneys needed to know some of the facts. And that was a very trying process for attorneys. And it was always very concerning to me with our support professionals um, because they would hear some of the story. Our client would tell us some of the story and our client would need you know, the right um, you know, guidance and help after because we're not psychological professionals. You know, Someone can tell me their story and the trauma that they've suffered and I need to deal with that internally and they need to deal with that. And I'm not equipped to do that, nor are many attorneys. So 
having that type of support is important. And then you have the questionable legal ground, you know, whether or not you need an expert to prove battered women's syndrome. It hasn't really been tested in this scenario in the Court of Appeals. But what we found are that uh, at, all of our cases were successful and courts were receptive to it. And that really led to the drafting of legislation to take like a hundred page brief with tons of exhibits and all of this trauma baked into it uh, into an uncertain process, which again is just incredibly traumatic showing up in court with a client who doesn't know how, how the court will receive this. Um, and we you know, used that process to draft a law that sort of made it a couple page process for these similar convictions of uh, prostitution related offenses and possession. Uh, but what you'll find if you use the statute is that every case is not so simple and you may still need to invoke uh, rule, rule of criminal procedure 30B, but uh, with the, the four set that the prostitution related offenses are, uh, can be vacated, I find that it's pretty easy to convince a court uh, using rule of criminal procedure 30B. We are certainly able to do that for Nikki and for other clients for offenses that include assault and battery. You know, assault and battery is a very difficult offense because there's a victim. And while your client's a victim, there's another victim. And that's a philosophical question that can become difficult. And sometimes a letter from the victim uh, can be super helpful there. And often, uh, you know, that isn't as difficult to obtain given the circumstances here. Um, so highly recommend um, reviewing rule of criminal procedure 30B in this context. It's actually a fairly simple process. And of course, um, at Mintz, we're happy to share any of our briefs with anyone working on any of these cases. We can redact identifying information so that you have the benefit of our legal arguments, which hopefully you can make even better. Uh, and then we can use and circulate again. Um, so I hope that answers that portion, Lavinia. That's very helpful, Alec. Thank you so much. And I should mention that at the end of this presentation, um, Ashley and I will put our contact information up on the screen. Um, the subcommittee is always happy to be kind of a clearinghouse or a point of contact if attorneys out there would like to see sample um, papers. You know, like Alex said, we'll redact all the identifying information, but you can, if you're interested to see sort of um, what filings have looked like that we've done either under the statute or under Rule 30B, we can certainly be a point of contact for that. Um, and so Alyssa, maybe we can kind of turn to you, um, you know, kind of staying on Nikki's case. Perhaps you can share with us some of what went into um, kind of setting this up for success behind the scenes, because, you know, in addition to sort of the filing of the papers and the motion practice, I imagine that there were some other steps that were taken to sort of help um, lay the path for this. Sure. And I think some of them are, you know, steps that are just sort of what I would say are maybe best practices for anyone interested in taking on one of these cases and sort of where to begin. Um, and I think one of the most important first steps is you want to, like Nikki said, do your research. Um, you know, not everybody, Nikki has given interviews and been profiled in different news sources. So, you know, there is more there for us to dig up than there's going to be for a lot of um, potential clients. But one of the first things you want to do is obtain the full criminal record for the person so that you can be sure that you're properly understanding and describing the offenses that you're seeking to vacate and also to ensure that you're moving with respect to as many of those offenses as possible. Um, for Nikki, like Alec and Nikki have described, there were offenses that clearly fell within the statute and then there were, were ones that did not. Um, but we had that full record and we were able to sort of immediately put the offenses into two buckets and then start looking at the convictions that didn't fit into the statute and sort of thinking about 
um, you know, what those were actually about and kind of how we could deal with those. Um, so you first want to request the client's quarry and carefully review it. Um, and for folks that don't practice criminal law that often, which um, I am usually a civil litigator. So this was something I, you know, not super familiar with quarries and with that process. And so that's something important to familiarize yourself with, you know, take the time to read it, to understand it. Um, and again, then I bucket the convictions. It's very easy to, you know, identify the ones. The statute is very clear what fits under there. So any sex for a fee, common, um, night walking and street walking, certain drug offenses, you know, we are quickly able to say, okay, like those are going into the vacature statute argument. That's going to be easy. We'll kind of set those aside and focus on the ones that are a little more complicated. Um, and when we did that, um, you know, Alec described the type of argument that we made, but one of the key ways that we were able to make um, the, the newly discovered evidence argument is to talk to Nikki and understand the background of those offenses. Um, you know, you see an assault and battery offense, that can be a whole myriad of situations that, that cause that to occur. And so being able to hear um, and actually, you know, sort of don't make any assumptions, don't make any judgments, um, you know, to the extent that your client's comfortable talking about it, try to figure out why those offenses um, occurred or why those convictions exist. Um, because often once you start to dig deeper, you, you know, quickly understand that the story behind it is absolutely related to the trafficking experience um, and is something that, you know, you can very easily make this particularly, again, now that we've especially had success with this newly discovered evidence argument, um, I think it's a pretty, a pretty broad argument. A lot of convictions can fit into um, the, the argument, the way we structured it, that they were convictions that occurred only because the person was suffering from battered women's syndrome um, and was, you know, essentially under complete control of their trafficker. And on their face, you might, you know, see a trespassing charge and think like, oh, someone was trespassing. Well, in reality, you dig deeper and you find out that they were trespassing because that's where their pimp told them they had to go to solicit. And, you know, so much is outside of these clients' control in their day-to-day -day life when they're being trafficked. And so um, digging deeper and coming to understand the stories behind the offenses, and then also figuring out how you're going to relay those stories in a way that's, you know, efficient and effective and a brief, but also really gets to the heart of what's actually going on here and what we're really talking about, which is this trafficking experience. Um, and then I think one of the things that um, Alec touched on briefly that was helpful is reaching out to, uh, you know, in the, in the assault and battery charge, he mentioned reaching out to the victim and trying to get the victim to say like, hey, you know, writing the letter essentially, it says like, hey, I get it, you know, this was, you know, I, I, I'm not interested in pressing charges on this, like this, I understand why this happened and, you know, I, I'm willing to vouch for this person. Um, and, you know, that may may not be easy. You may not even be able to track down the victim, but something else that we did that I think was helpful was we also, and Nikki mentioned this, we talked to law enforcement that knew Nikki and that she had interacted with, um, you know, in the time that she was trafficked. And they were able to say, yeah, she's a trafficking victim. You know, yeah, we know Nikki. And especially now, Nikki does such great work in the community. She has a great relationship with law enforcement who can vouch for the amazing work that she does, um, which was helpful. So it was kind of you know, pretty, pretty easy to get some law enforcement on our side, um, which, you know, may or may not always be the case. But I think one other step that we took that, which I guess to summarize that piece, like any supporting letters, affidavits, things like that, that you can get um, are going to be helpful. But then the other big thing, you know, that I think everybody should do is reach out to the prosecutor before you file everything. So we prepared all of our pleadings, you know, all of the affidavits and exhibits, and then we sent it to the DA and talked to the DA in advance of filing everything and essentially got him on our side. Um, 
And I think we actually had the DA change while we were working on the case. So there's, it was a little tricky because I think the first DA was like completely on board and then we had to convince DA number two, but essentially, you know, when we went to court and the DA didn't want to fight it, that was huge. It was just so much easier. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, you're able to identify who the prosecutor is, talk to them, you know, explain the situation. They're not all bad people. Like they, you know, there's a lot of human elements to this. And I think, again, there's so many of these convictions when you just look at a criminal record, tell such a minor part of the story. And so being able to sort of share the full story with people, I think there's a lot of understanding that this is sort of, this is what's supposed to happen. These are supposed to be vacated. You know, this this is justice. And so um, I think, again, getting the, D, the DA on your side, if you can, is huge. Uh, just to add what Alyssa said, um, we, in every single case uh, that we've had representing uh, a prostitute person, We've reached out to the district attorney's office. We have always found them to be, you know, wonderfully cooperative. Uh, of course, inquiring uh, and doing their own due diligence. But uh, usually, what we what we have always done is provide drafts of our briefs before filing to the district attorney's office and welcomed conversations. I've had instances where people received the DA's office received it and where there were open cases and they closed the cases and and filed no process. We have had, uh, you know, always had a very uh, nice response from district attorney's offices uh, because I think that everyone accepts the fact that people who are prostituted are prostituted against their will uh, more often than not. And um, it's been, you know, it's really been pleasant to work with the various uh, DA's offices and it's really moving in court when you present your motion and the judge asks the DA's office for their position and this happened in Nikki's case, where the DA's office responds with glowing remarks about your client. And that can be very, that's a very powerful moment. I've seen it be a very powerful moment. Um, and judges have been very receptive, um, speaking usually directly with our clients um, and acknowledging that they are a victim. You know, that's powerful. And, um, you know, I find that everyone, you know, the story alone is enough to move everyone. And they're trying to fit the case within the law. That's, thanks, Alec. That's a great point. And, you know, I think what um, this piece about engaging with the DA's office also helps to highlight just procedurally is thinking, keeping in mind the fact that the way vacature works in Massachusetts is that it doesn't wipe the slate clean in one fell swoop, right? So vacature kind of is like a rewind button. It, it, bring, it vacates the conviction but the arrest is still there. The charges are still there. It's hitting the reset button. So what you might not want to have happen for your client is to vacate the conviction, have the charges reset and, and find out that the DA wants to press, you know, press forward with those charges again. That might not be a great outcome. So ensuring that, you know, or feeling some level of confidence that once those charges, the conviction is vacated and the charges are reset, that that the you know arrest is going to be null pros, that those charges are going to be null pros. And that's for folks who don't speak kind of that language, which I don't really speak either. That means you know that the that the the DA is not going to move forward. Um, and maybe actually this is a good opportunity for me to turn things to Dave, who does speak this language a little bit more. But I think Dave, um, you know, Dave has experience, like I mentioned, representing a survivor recently vacating convictions under the statute. Um, but also, Dave, I'm hoping you can share a little bit of um, background on 
kind of the next steps in the process, because even if the conviction is vacated, even if the DA, you know, is not going to move forward, there is still an arrest on the record. And so, so what's the, what, what are kind of the procedures and the tips in, in that circumstance? Yeah. Um, thanks, Lavinia. And um, yeah, so I, I guess I think a lot of the sort of procedure on the front end um, has already been covered, but the only thing that I'll, I guess, add to that is I do think that communication with all of the parties involved is is crucial and helpful, um, particularly, uh, I guess, one thing that we haven't touched on as much is communication with the court and the clerk's office, um, particularly in the district courts. I'm sure any of you who practice in the district courts know that they're really the gatekeepers. And so, um, you know, being able to, to talk to someone in the clerk's office and say, look, I have this motion. It's not a typical motion that you see. Um, but this is what we're trying to do here. Um, that, that can really be the difference between, you know, getting it heard sooner rather than later. Um, so sometimes there's sort of a little bit more explaining um, that you would need to do than, than I guess in a typical, your, your typical practice. But um, I, uh, so I, I had an individual who, is, who had two uh, prostitution related offenses on her record that both arose from the same incident. One was uh, fell squarely within the, the statute um, sex for a fee. And the other one was uh, providing a false name, which isn't explicitly covered by the statute. But as you can probably imagine, often goes hand in hand. Um, someone is arrested for uh, being a prostitute. They're asked their name. They give a false name. That's it. That's, that's the, other, uh, the other offense. Um, so we moved under the statute as well as um, under Rule uh, 30B. And um, you know, communicated with all the parties, and just as in um, in Nikki's case with uh, Alec and Alyssa, we were able to get the DA's office on board ahead of time. And um, in fact, uh, we didn't even need to go to court. We we filed the papers, uh, and we were able to get the the judge to just decide on the papers that um, the conviction would be vacated, that both convictions would be vacated, um, and um, which was a great result. Uh, very happy, but as um, as everyone has mentioned, all all that means for the uh, for the record of the individual is the guilty is wiped away, but the arrest is still there. The and the case is open, and it was actually um, you know it was given a, a pretrial conference date. And so if you don't do anything, there'll either be a default um, for your client, which isn't which isn't good, um, and there'll be a warrant out. Or uh, you know, or you'll be set back to the to the trial track and have to try the case. So, um, you know, as a practical matter, particularly for the older convictions, I mean, the DA's office wouldn't be able to try these cases even if it wanted to. They're not going to have the witnesses. But hopefully, it never gets to that point, and um, you know, they're just agreed that uh, they're not going to move forward. So uh, we were able to get them to agree. They they filed a null pros, so then the case is over. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, that is also not the end of the story um, because the charge will still show up on the individual's record. So for employers, for um, volunteer organizations, um, my particular uh, client, which is, you know, I'm sure a very common concern, wanted to be able to go on, you know, field trips with their children, volunteer in schools, things like that. And, and those are organizations that will have access to uh, criminal records. Um, but if charges are sealed, uh, they won't. So in order to uh, ensure that, that she was able to completely move forward with, with uh, the most minimal impact um, on her life moving forward, we had to seal the charge. 
Um, now, for any of you who are familiar with the sealing regime in Massachusetts, there are essentially two different avenues for sealing a criminal record. There's the avenue, uh, the, the preferred avenue, which doesn't require anyone to go to court, which is just filing a petition with the commissioner of probation and sealing a charge. And then there's the avenue that requires you to go to uh, court to seal the charge. And in, in our instance, um, first, we tried to file with the commissioner of probation, thinking that we met all of the requirements. Uh, well, it turns out that the commissioner of probation has taken the position that filing a vacature motion counts as a court appearance, uh, which means that you are ineligible for sealing for three years for a misdemeanor. So for anyone who's doing these cases moving forward, that's something that might be helpful to know uh, that you the really the way that you're going to want to do it is to file a motion in the district court. Um, there's no reason uh, to think that um, th this would be necessarily require uh, an appearance, um, but it would depend, you know, potentially on the judge. But it is it is something to be aware of, and um, you know, if if you're thinking, oh, I can just file this uh, petition with the commissioner, um, I guess maybe it's possible that you'd have success. But in in our instance, um, we we uh, were rebuffed by the commissioner because of that interpretation of the rule and uh, anticipate they probably will be taking that position in the future. So it might be something to, to consider as you move forward with sealing. But that hopefully will be the, is the last step and then your client can um, completely move on and uh, this will be totally in the past. Thanks so much, Dave, that, that's very helpful. Um, and, and so the, do folks um, on the panel have a sense of whether that motion to seal can be brought kind of at the same time as a vacatur motion or do, do, does it need to happen as a second separate step? So, Lavinia, what typically happens is you'd file the motion when you appear in court for the hearing on uh, vacating the conviction. And typically the court will require a second hearing to appear to see if anyone has an objection to the motion to seal. Alyssa, you recently had a hearing uh, on a motion for that. Do you have anything to add on that one? Yeah, so I think my sense, so when um, it was, for Nikki's case, when we got the convictions vacated, like Alex said, we actually literally filled out a paper motion that day and brought it down. And it there was some confusion in the courthouse, the mm -hmm. clerk uh, like, and, the judge had different interpretations of sort of when it could be granted. I, the judge told us that he was going to be able to grant it that day. That turned out not to be true. So they had to set a second hearing. We were told it had to be a two-step process. Um, our second hearing was scheduled for about six months later, um, which was a frustrating delay, made only more frustrating by COVID because six months later was April 2020. And so we ended up um, being forced. I forget when we act. I think it was October. Um, that we actually got to have the hearing. And it was a pretty quick, you know, relatively perfunctory hearing when we finally got there. But for poor Nikki, it dragged out for another whole year just waiting for that um, ceiling. So it was pretty a pretty easy process. Um, but like everything in the judicial system, it takes a frustratingly long time and a pandemic doesn't help. So hopefully the pandemic delay won't be something <laughs> folks have to face going forward. But I would say, you know, it, you're going to file it that day, you're going to be told you'll get a hearing date in the future. And like everything else, that hearing date could be, you know, God knows how many months away. So um, expect that delay, I would, you know, try to prepare your client for the fact that that that's probably the type of timeline you're looking at. Understood. I, Thanks. Go ahead. Nikki. I just wanted to add that, like the importance of like, 
Oh, and the significance, I think, for survivors of having things like nalprost, like, you know, so I think there was like options of having it dismissed or like nalprost and, and like having it nalprost is like, essentially, like you should never have been convicted or charged with these crimes to begin with. And having the court say that to you after you've been criminalized and convicted over and over and over and over again matters. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, that I, I just wanted to add like the importance of like hearing that from the court. Like I know courts don't apologize, right? But like essentially, you know, that we were wrong to try you on these cases to begin with. And so um, I would advocate for, for people to ask for that if possible. That's great. Yeah, that, that um, to have that experience of a court and a system that maybe didn't, you know, recognize or understand what you know, a survivor was dealing with at the time to recognize it later um, and acknowledge it that, you know, this kind of never should have happened um, must, you know, must be powerful. Yep, yeah, and I'll add Nikki on that point. That is exactly, in all of our cases, we've had that. And I find that um, clients will go on to do many things, apply for law school, for instance. And this, you know, there's some circumstances where notwithstanding vacature and sealing, that there is an obligation to disclose nonetheless. But in those instances, when I've talked with clients struggling with what to disclose, we talk about how powerful their story is and how much they've overcome. And to end that story with the district attorney's office, uh, filing a no process, stating that they were, they were a victim and never should have been charged in the first place is always so incredibly powerful to our clients and in those circumstances where they unfortunately need to talk about their story. Uh, so certainly encourage everyone to coordinate with the DA's office because I find the DA's offices are well-educated and receptive uh, to these motions. Well, thank you all so much for kind of weighing in on and sharing your experiences navigating this, you know, relatively new process in a lot of ways in Massachusetts. Um, at this point, you know, we have about 10 minutes left and, and we would love to open it up to questions. I don't see any questions pending at the moment. Um, so maybe while we wait for if anyone wants to use either the Q&A feature or the chat to type in any questions, um, maybe I can ask each of you just to sort of say, in, in one or two words, if there's any one either tip you have for attorneys kind of thinking about navigating this process or any one um, suggestion you have for how to kind of to the, to the universe to make, to make this process easier, um, you know, what might, what might that be? Um, and maybe where should we start? Nikki, start. Go ahead, Alec. <laughs> so for, from the perspective of an attorney taking on a, a new client, uh, who's a prostitute person, please be very careful of the power dynamic. You know, being a white male representing sometimes juveniles, but always women uh, who appear at the 40, 46th floor of a major building and there's drink carts and panoramic views and all of these attorneys in suits, that dynamic is, you know, can be very difficult. And it's really important uh, to, you know, make sure that you're aware of the trauma there. And often it's not productive and you shouldn't ask about what has happened. I accept it's true that the person was prostituted based on their criminal record. And often I'll ask clients, you know, and every client is completely different, but I'll ask clients to tell me what they feel comfortable telling me in writing at a subsequent meeting. And if they provide their, they can provide their story to me, some clients want to tell me their entire story. 
Some clients don't, but I, I leave that to them to put in writing what they want to tell me. And I can use that for an affidavit, but many times I never need to and never will read that statement because the client knows I have it. I know I need it if I need to cross-check a fact for later on in the case, but rarely will I. And particularly working with juveniles, uh, I think it's really important that you know it could take six months to a year before you really know a client's story for immigration purposes. And um, you need to proceed at your client's pace and hopefully uh, there's pro bono uh, services for people who can talk with them uh, about processing that trauma without you around um, after your meetings and trying to make sure those, those appointments are scheduled back to back with your meetings because the worst thing that can happen is you further a legal goal but cause significant trauma in the process, you know, then we're not really doing our job. So just being, being aware of that and how you may present. Um, so I'd never ask a client to tell their story. Uh, that a type of open-ended question could be really difficult. If I could pick back off that a little um, bit. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. We do have one um, kind of question from the audience. But go ahead, add, Alyssa, and then yeah. Add one quick tip, because I had sort of, when you gave us this question in advance, I wrote down something similar to what Alec just said. And, and Nikki touched on this as well. And one thing I just want to mention is there are, resources and courses and you know trainings and webinars available for trauma-informed representation and to help you to be more prepared to effectively help and represent your clients. Um, so I highly recommend that type of training if you have the chance to um, access that. And if you're having trouble finding one, you know, one area where you can often find them is immigration organizations that work with asylum seekers and refugees. They often have you know, incredible resources in this area because, you know, inherently asylum seekers have suffered trauma. Um, and that's an area where, you know, this comes up so often. So definitely seek that out before taking on these cases. It's, you know, again, as Alec and Nikki have both described the power dynamic, just also making survivors relive trauma. Like these are really difficult things and they're not, they're not always easy to navigate if you have no training or experience. And I think just the bottom line is, we're lawyers, we write briefs in sometimes a relatively stoic way. And, you know, we write a story. You need to remember that this isn't a story, it's someone's story. And it's recounting usually the most traumatic things they've ever been through. So it's really, really important, again, to try to access that type of training and guidance because it makes a huge difference for your client and for your outcome. Thanks, Alyssa. That's a great point. And, you know, that's an area that um, I, I if I am recalling correctly, the BBA either has recently or will soon be offering a training like that. And you've also, that might be another um, great sort of program for the subcommittee to think about um, hosting. So, so we'll definitely, um, that's a great idea. And that one of the questions that has come in recently from the audience, and maybe Dave, actually, you could um, take a stab at fielding this is particularly how can allies in the district attorney's office help make this process run more smoothly? And, you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit in terms of the fact that, um, you know, folks have in the DA's office have been willing to speak with us and, and read what we've said and, you know, and talk with us, but, but maybe you can say a little bit more about that, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the, best place to start is, uh, you know, go to the, the district court where the conviction was. Um, and obviously that gets a little more complicated if there are different uh, district courts. And um, you should reach out to the, uh, the district court supervisor. Um, and uh, obviously if you have a contact in the DA's office, that might be helpful, but the district court supervisor should be the one uh, to whom you wanna direct your, 
your question and just be prepared, I think, to explain, you know, there is this new law, you know, a little bit of the background. So I think familiarizing yourself with the background and that it is a new thing because likely they won't have heard of it. Um, so until it beca this becomes more of a regular sort of process, this isn't something they're used to seeing. And in district courts, they're very busy. They have hundreds and hundreds of cases. And because this isn't an open case, this is going to be very, very low priority. And if you haven't spoken to the DA's office, the court isn't going to set your motion down for hearing because they want to know that, you know, the other party has been made aware. So I think, um, I, I think that is a, a crucial point and being able to explain that it, it is something new and that you understand and that you're willing to speak with them about, you know, their questions or concerns, um, that, that can really, really help things move along. Because I think once you get their attention and, um, you know, get them focused on, you know, what exactly you're trying to do, most of them will be on board. I mean, as Alex said, we haven't encountered any resistance at all so far. And, and um, I, you know, I, I could see some happening down the line for, um, you know, for things like assault and battery, maybe these tangential offenses that don't necessarily squarely fit under the statute that you're trying to hopefully sweep in. Um, but having that conversation sort of early um, and, and explaining what's going on, I think is probably the best way to, to, get, uh, to get things moving as fast as possible. Thanks, Dave. That, that's helpful. And, you know, another question has come in from the audience that actually kind of relates to this, um, the idea of offenses that don't fall kind of squarely within the statute. And the question is, you know, what if a client doesn't have any prostitution, you know, common night walking, common street walking convictions, but only has, you know, a drug related or a financial crime related conviction that nevertheless still stems from the trafficking? You know, is it is it possible to make those arguments under Rule 30B? Is it more difficult, Alec? Lavinia, what do you think? Of course, of course it is. You know, we yeah. when we first started taking on these cases, there was no statute. Um, the all that matters is the facts that your client is putting forward, and it may be that the only corroborating evidence in that circumstance is an affidavit. Uh, but sometimes what I find is that there are medical records or there's other information talking with your client that can help prove that the person was prostituted because you don't need an arrest for prostitution to show that often people will only be arrested for disorderly conduct or trespass. Uh, so talk with the client, see if there's, there's anything other than their affidavit. But if all you have is that person's affidavit, that is still enough and you can move forward with a motion. Uh, and it's possible that the, the arguments will be a little more difficult. But again, I would recommend that you prepare that motion under rule of criminal procedure 30B Call, send it to the district attorney's office and talk with them through it. Because when you appear in court, if the district attorney's office is, is not objecting, which would likely be the scenario, uh, then you will likely have a positive outcome with limited pushback from the court. Because I find that judges will be interested to read your client's affidavit and will want to act in the best interest of justice. Um, so I think you will prevail and I encourage you to take on those cases. Thanks. That's great. Um, well, we have, we have, those are the two kind of questions that have come in so far from the audience. We have about three minutes left. Maybe Nikki, if you had, if you could give the final word on maybe one recommendation you have for how to, you know, improve this process even more for survivors, um, what would it be? Oh, I, I was going to say, you know, take some training on trauma-informed lawyering. It really is important. Um, but I also like, like, you know, I think trauma-informed is a term that gets thrown around, thrown around without a lot of real understanding. And so 
find a, an actual resource that understands what they're talking about. Um, and then, you know, second, I will say that Alec and Alyssa are working on some legislation for us um, that would essentially decriminalize uh, prostitution for the sellers, so for the exploited. So I would encourage people to advocate for that legislation um, because another component of it is it automatically expunges these record uh, charges from people's records. Um, and so this process would kind of be eliminated and um, survivors wouldn't have to go through it. You know, I know it's, it's fantastic that it exists and it's there, but we shouldn't but, have to, right? right. Um, so. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I think you've touched on another great topic for a program for the subcommittee as well, maybe as this new legislative initiative as well that folks are working on. Um, and maybe it looks like we've had one more. Um, you know, I think we're good. I think we've covered all our questions from the audience. And um, maybe Ashley, you could put the slide up just with our contact information so that if anyone you know who's listened in today would like to learn more, would like to see sample papers, I think anyone on this panel um, or at least I'll, I can't speak for everyone, but I'll say I'm sure the MINS team would be happy to share resources and, and everything else. So I, I thank all of you on the panel for taking the time to, um, to speak with us today. I know it's a little bit weird to speak into the ether, but it looks like we've had about 23 participants on the line with us this afternoon. So we're really grateful that there are so many people out there who are interested um, in, in this work and interested in supporting survivors. And please do feel free to contact um, either me or Ashley. We are also hoping to have a kind of um, meeting of the human trafficking subcommittee and kind of reinvigorate the group likely in, in the coming weeks. So we will, um, if you're interested in being part of the subcommittee, please do also feel free to reach out to me and to Ashley and we'll get you looped in as well. Thank you so much, Lavinia and Ashley and Nikki. Yes, thank you all. Thank you, thank Nikki, you for so much for, for sharing your experience. And thank you all for being here today.